Hello and welcome to In the Interest of National Security. I'm Professor Ryan Vogel, Director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. And I'm Professor Jonathan Rudd, Associate Director of the Center. Our guest today is Dr. Kerry Karchner. Dr. Karchner has a master's degree and PhD in international relations from the University of Southern California and a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University. Dr. Karchner is an adjunct professor in the National Security Studies program at Utah Valley University, the Department of Defense and Strategic Studies at Missouri State University, and a lecturer at the Krieger School of Art and Science at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Karchner had an extensive career with the U.S. Department of State and Department of Defense. He led the team that drafted the 2004 Joint Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense Statement on the need for strategic nuclear modernization. He was the State Department representative to the 2009 Congressionally Chartered Strategic Posture Review Commission. And as a senior foreign policy advisor at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, he organized and participated in nuclear dialogues with countries such as Russia, China, Japan, South Korea, India, Pakistan, the UK, and France. Dr. Karchner has authored numerous publications on US arms control, strategic culture, and nuclear weapons policy. He brings decades of national security and diplomatic experience to the conversation, and we are excited to welcome him to the podcast today. Very good to be here. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to have you as a guest on the podcast. You have been able to successfully blend your career pursuits with a career in government service. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your educational and career path? Sure. Um, so I, I graduated, as, as Ryan said, with a master's degree and PhD in international relations with a concentration on strategic nuclear studies uh, from USC. And then right out of graduate school, I was recruited to join the faculty of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And there I taught mid-career Naval and Air Force officers. I taught nuclear strategy and arms control uh, topics to, to those. And that was a great experience because these were operators of nuclear weapons systems. So I was teaching them the doctrine and the history uh, of, of what they were actually operating. So that was great. <clears throat> in the meantime, I had a consulting relationship with a private think tank in Washington, D.C., and after a few years of teaching, they recruited me to join their staff in Washington, D.C., where I was the primary consultant to the Air Force's nuclear acquisition community for arms control. I told the Air Force how arms control was going to impact their nuclear acquisition programs. And I did that for a few years and then got recruited into an agency called the Agency, uh, this, the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, where I was uh, assigned as an intelligence analyst at first, and then a member of the delegation to Geneva, Switzerland, implementing the START Treaty. <clears throat> and I did that for a year or so before being promoted to, to the agency's senior representative on that delegation. We did not negotiate the START Treaty, but we were responsible for implementing it. Every treaty like that creates a commission that commission meets several times a year and reviews how things are going. It resolves disputes that come up. And I chaired the inspection protocol working group on that delegation, which meant I negotiated directly with the, the Russians, Kazakhstanis, uh, Ukrainians, and Belarusians 
on inspection issues that came up and had the opportunity to go on uh, uh, several inspections of Russian nuclear weapon bases. And at a certain point, that agency got absorbed into the State Department, and uh, I then finished out my career in the State Department in the International Security and Nonproliferation Bureau with responsibilities mostly for nonproliferation type issues. I, I uh, sought approval to get uh, to take some time to go work in the Defense Department. And so I served two, three-year tours of duty in the Defense Threat Reduction Agency on loan from the, the State Department and, and did uh, these nuclear arms control dialogues with other countries was my primary responsibility. And then I transitioned into a public diplomacy role and eventually um, took some time off to go teach at Texas A&M University and then received an offer to come out to Utah uh, to be a full-time teacher for a three-year period for another university. And that's how I transitioned into an academic. I, I might say that I had been teaching evening classes on arms control and nonproliferation at a, a satellite campus near Washington, D.C. I had been teaching there for 10 or 12 years, so it wasn't like a, an overnight transition. It was something I had been doing and then gradually kind of made that a full-time and retired then from the State Department. Carrie, this is a fascinating background, and I know our students have really benefited from your experience, particularly on nuclear strategy and nonproliferation issues. Could you provide our listeners with just a high-level overview regarding the history of nuclear nonproliferation and, in particular, the non-prolif- Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, or the NPT? Yes. So the, the Nonproliferation Treaty was signed in 1968 and entered into force in 1970. In 1995, it was renewed indefinitely so that the treaty uh, lasts um, in perpetuity. Um, But the treaty created uh, five nuclear weapon states, and then everyone else is a non-nuclear weapon state. The five nuclear weapon states under this treaty promise to help non-nuclear weapon states develop peaceful nuclear energy, and they promise the non-nuclear weapon states that they will seek in good faith negotiations toward a complete elimination of all nuclear weapons. The five nuclear weapon states are the U.S., Russia, China, England, and France. Interestingly, one thing that not many people know is that the Chinese seat was originally held by the Taiwanese. But in the 1970s, with the the new U.S. one-China policy, China took over it, the seat on the UN Security Council, which had been held by a Taiwanese. And China also took over the status as the nuclear weapon state under the Nonproliferation Treaty. To date, the, the treaty has actually been remarkably successful. Only four countries are not parties to this treaty, and they are India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel. 
all countries that have nuclear weapons but don't want to be constrained by the, the international treaty. So those countries pose certain challenges for the non-proliferation treaty. Just to follow up, Carrie, on that one, it um, obviously the the five uh, nuclear powers then are also the Security Council permanent members, the P five. Yes. In in the um, negotiation of that treaty, and even since then, has there been any discussion of adding official members to represent the global South or continents that are not represented on the P five, the Security Council? No, but the the global South and other regions have gotten together to form, in, in many cases, what we call nuclear weapon-free zones. And those nuclear weapon-free zones are recognized and sanctioned by the treaty. So that's it's all part of the global nuclear non-proliferation regime. Right. You know, you talked about negotiating nuclear arms deals with Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on those negotiations and the importance of nuclear strategy and arms control agreements in the international community? Yes. So the importance of that treaty was that it set strict limits on the numbers of nuclear weapons and the numbers of launchers, where, where they could be located, how they could be operated, um, and provided for a, a really comprehensive on-site inspection verification regime. That treaties like that, and the follow-on New START treaty, which is enforced today, although greatly weakened by Russian actions. Those treaties are important for providing for strategic stability, predictability, and crisis management. Um, and so they've been an important part of the international uh, global arms control nonproliferation regime, uh, which has allowed countries to forego building their own nuclear weapons because they've been assured by the stability of this regime. Now we are seeing that regime damaged and eroded. And part of the problem with that is that countries that were considering whether or not to acquire their own nuclear weapons now have more incentives to break their nonproliferation commitments, as did North Korea, and develop their own nuclear weapons capabilities. A big problem in that respect is Iran, for example, which currently is a member in good standing of the nonproliferation treaty. But we are concerned that it has a covert capability to resume nuclear weapons development. Interesting. We, we brought this up earlier, uh, but during your time with the State Department, you were a member of the team in 2004 that drafted that joint statement highlighting the need for strategic modernization in the nuclear realm. How does strategic modernization play into nonproliferation and the protection of American interests? That's a really good question. And just let me say one thing about that statement. It was very unusual to have the State Department, the Secretary of, the, of State and the Secretary of Defense so, sign a joint statement like that. I mean, yeah. uh, that's really rare. I mean, they work in consonant with each other and they work closely together, but they rarely issue a joint statement. So it was a really important thing. And it, and it called for Congress to support a robust modernization program and the development and maintenance of effective, secure, effective, and, and safe nuclear warheads. So that statement was really important in, in that regard. So in terms of the, the impact, here's something that we should really take into consideration, which is 
The arms control regime is unraveling. The United States concluded in 2014 that Russia was violating the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty of 1987, and then and Russia re- denied that, refused to resolve our concerns about that. And so in 2019, the U.S. Uh, withdrew from that treaty. Uh, and Russia has subsequently suspended much of the new START treaty, which limits our nuclear force, our strategic nuclear forces. So that's what I mean when I say it's unraveling. So right now, we are reaching an era where the old-time arms control agreements are kind of coming to an end. So we're reaching a critical point for the future of arms control. And I have asserted with other colleagues and and in other places that we are going to need to develop the negotiating leverage to get Russia interested in coming back to the table. Right now, Russia is not interested in coming to the negotiating table. They have no reason to. They're in a state of hostility. Our relations have deteriorated. So there's no incentive for Russia to come back to the negotiating table and negotiate further nuclear arms control agreements. Likewise, China is in the middle of an extensive and unprecedented buildup in its nuclear capabilities and has no interest whatsoever in joining the U.S. and Russia in a trilateral nuclear arms control agreement. I I spent several years in my career talking with the Chinese about the future of arms control, too, so I got a good sense of where from where they're coming. But the problem now is we lack negotiating leverage. And to get negotiating leverage, we actually have to engage in a nuclear arms race. We have to start building up nuclear forces. And there's really very little political will for that in the United States. So without that negotiating leverage, I don't think arms control has a a very good future. What role do our strategic alliances such as NATO play in the realm of arms control? So NATO is, by the, by the perspective of a lot of scholars, the most successful and the most powerful alliance in history. And NATO has kept uh, the peace in Europe. At least the, it has kept the NATO members out of a war. We can't say since Russian and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we can't say it has kept the peace in, in Europe, but it has kept NATO members out of out of war. So it's been it's been highly successful. And the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine has unified this. The alliance made it stronger in, in a couple of respects. The first one is that countries that have been traditionally neutral, like Finland and Sweden, are now interested in joining Finland joined this past year. Sweden's membership as the 32nd member of NATO, I think, is imminent. So all of a sudden, these neutral countries are are wanting to join NATO. And for the first time in NATO's history, most of the countries in NATO are gradually ramping up their nuclear, their uh, military defense spending to NATO targets. So NATO's become more unified and strengthened as a result of the Ukrainian uh, invasion by Russia. So this this alliance has proved critical for not only peace building, but all the members of this alliance, uh, other than France and the UK, 
have agreed not to acquire nuclear weapons because they are now shielded or protected by the so-called nuclear umbrella, the U.S. nuclear umbrella. If the credibility of that umbrella begins to falter, there are countries that might start thinking they need to get their own nuclear weapons as, as, as a counterweight. The, the problem that we're facing now with the non-proliferation arms control regime is that Russia has done so much damage to that regime. In 1994, Russia, the UK, the United States, and Ukraine signed something called the Budapest Memorandum. And in that, that was a, a mechanism for giving U Ukraine ironclad assurances of territorial integrity. Russia promised in that document not to threaten Ukraines with nuclear weapons and not to, to uh, undermine its sovereignty in exchange for Ukraine agreeing to transfer 1,800 nuclear weapons to Moscow. And now Ukraine is the subject of this invasion and aggression by by Ukraine. So what is the lesson of that to all the nuclear rogue states in the country, in, in the world? And the lesson is don't ever give up your nuclear weapons. And, and so that Russia's violation of the Budapest Memorandum has, has been a severe blow to the international nuclear nonproliferation regime. Yeah, and with what you've said there, you know, we have the NATO countries that fall under that U.S. nuclear umbrella, but then there's also the non-NATO countries, and in particular, I'm thinking of Japan and South Korea, who have even talked about maybe they do need to, you know, obtain their own nuclear weapons. So what can the U.S. do to try and continue this concept of extended deterrence, uh, or do you see it as inevitable that it's going to fall apart? So in the case, of, the case of Japan and South Korea, those are really critical uh, cases because both of them have a deep expertise in nuclear energy. Um, South Korea actually aspires to become a major exporter of nuclear energy technology. Uh, Japan has for some time had a, a really strong nuclear enterprise. So both of those countries are, are both capable of converting some of that capability to developing nuclear weapons. In the nonproliferation community, we kind of half-jokingly refer to Japan as being in a situation where it is only one turn of a screw away from having a nuclear weapons. You know, of course, that's a lot of hyperbole and, and, and a little bit facetious. But in my conversations with the Chinese, the Chinese are terrified of the prospect that Japan might acquire nuclear weapons. And, and the point that I stressed and my colleagues stressed in those conversations with the Chinese was that it was a, the strength of American extended nuclear deterrence to those countries that was preventing them from getting their own nuclear weapons. So China actually should be grateful for our extended deterrence assurances to those countries. Yeah. Um, of course, whenever that conversation got to that point, they changed the, the subject. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
um, the ways we can strengthen that is to is to continue to reassure South Korea and North, and uh, Japan of the strength of our commitment. We the, the Defense Department has established a couple of uh, commissions that that engage both South Korea and Japan in regular extended deterrence dialogues, and we at one time had had a couple thousand nuclear weapons in South Korea at forward deployed. It seems to me that we might want to, to revisit our decision to withdraw those and, and to determine whether there's any grounds for maybe reintroducing forward deployed nuclear weapons under American control into South Korea. Let me just follow up on this because I think these last two answers have been just fascinating. Um, and I just want to make sure that that we get uh, this right and that that your the audience understands what you're saying. So I I take your argument then that it is in the best interest of non-proliferation efforts worldwide for the United States to build up and modernize its nuclear arsenal but to extend that kind of guarantee of that nuclear umbrella so that other states do not have to build up their nuclear um, potential or their, you know, their, their nuclear arsenal. Is that, am I uh, capturing that right? That is the essence of my argument. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a fascinating um, argument because, you know, I think a lot of people, even in the national security community, when they think about nuclear nonproliferation, they think still of the United States kind of ratcheting back its um its weapons program but but i think your argument is really important that you know as russia and china continue to expand its programs and as external factors like the russians war in in ukraine um insert some kind of uh instability um in in the whole context here that you know united states strength is going to be really important going forward exactly the, the key to every, the, every successful arms control agreement we've negotiated has been based on having negotiating leverage. Or as President Reagan used to say, negotiating from a position of strength. Yeah. Otherwise, these countries are not interested. I mean, the, I, my, my friends in the arms control nonproliferation communities think that it is important for the U.S. to seize the moral high ground and set an example of nuclear disarmament. But the track record is that betrays weakness and that doesn't give us the leverage we need to bring those countries to the negotiating table. Yeah, I guess the other thing that you might add to that conversation is just the the erosion of the international system. You know, if, if we're looking 20, 30 years back where the international system is relatively strong, um, you know, maybe the United States as an exemplar of, you know, of restraint and reduction is probably more effective. But in a world where the international system is in, you know, a state of unraveling of some to some degree, um, U.S. strength is probably more important in some ways than than that example of restraint. I think that's a good point. On, on the same note, as we move forward in a world where our most prominent adversaries, we've just been talking about them are also nuclear world powers. How do you see the role of nuclear strategy evolving in the years to come? So I see nuclear strategy evolving towards uh, an emphasis on 
what we in the nuclear community call damage limitation, which is efforts to limit damage. And in practice, that means greater emphasis on missile defense, on air defenses, and those kinds of things. And I think the war in Ukraine has demonstrated the the importance of robust air defenses. Um, Israel has demonstrated on multiple occasions the effectiveness of its Iron Dome missile defense capabilities, which is approaching uh, about 3,000 intercepts since 2014, Israel's Iron Dome. Okay, now what is significant about the 3,000 interceptions is what would the damage have been to the targets of those 3,000 missiles had Israel not had an Iron Dome system? So what, what I've been proposing is that we start thinking about missile defenses and air defenses more in terms of what damage do they avert? And um, I've been engaging in some online conversations recently about cost effectiveness. And I think there's a fallacy in the cost effectiveness argument re regarding missile defenses. And the fallacy is comparing the cost of our interceptor missiles to the cost of the offensive missiles they're intercepting. That, that's not the correct cost effective calculation. The correct cost-effective calculation is the cost of those interceptors versus the cost of replacing the cities and assets they're protecting. So if an interceptor costs a million dollars, and the, this, the Patriot missiles cost about a million dollars each, but the, inter, the missiles they're intercepting, we just yesterday, information was leaked by in Moscow, that Moscow is paying Iran $250,000 for its Shahid drones, which is quite a bit more than we thought they were paying. But if you're shooting a $250,000 drone down with a million dollar interceptor, that doesn't appear to be very cost effective. But it's what the, the million dollar interceptor is protecting and how much it would cost to replace that. I think that's the so anyways, to answer the question about where nuclear strategy is going, I, I think it's, I think the, the, the effectiveness and importance of missile defenses are being demonstrated right now. And I think that that's the direction we're going to be going in. Are, are you talking on that last note that you just, uh, that last comment that you made about a return to kind of like a Star Wars type system during the Reagan administration? And then again, in the W. Bush administration, there, there was talk about having that, you know, Iron Dome-like missile defense system? Is that what you're talking about? I'm not talking about a return to the Star Wars type global plan, uh, which is totally infeasible. But I am talking about ramping up U.S. missile defenses like th those based in Fort Greeley, Alaska, those based in Vandenberg, as well as the missile defense systems we have in Poland and Romania in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we are watching unfold right now wars involving raining missiles down on civilian populations. And those civilian populations need missile defenses to protect them. And we have, so, for so long in our country, 
had a disparaging attitude toward missile defenses that we are caught now unprepared to provide substantial air defense capabilities to Ukraine and to our forces deployed abroad. I mean, we've NATO is ramping up the deployment of rapid response forces al- along the border of Ukraine in Poland and other countries. Those forces need to be defended against a potential missile and drone attack. So we've got deployed forces and urban areas that need protection, and we're woefully unprepared to provide a robust defense for those assets and those targets. So that's what I'm talking about. And North Korea is also an issue. I think right now our missile defenses in Van- in Greeley and Vandenberg are actually fully capable of completely obliterating any kind of a North Korean attack on the United States, but not a Chinese attack. And the Chinese are, are ramping up the deployment of silo-based ICBMs, which is just completely baffling. Uh, but... We should maybe have another conversation sometime about the Chinese and Russian military uh, nuclear buildup. So, yeah, th- those are becoming serious security concerns. Well, and even the concerns with, you know, India and Pakistan and, and the potential for for nuclear weapons to fall into the the arms of, of terrorist organizations or, or whatnot is a, is a huge concern. I'm less concerned about that now than I was 10, 15 years ago. Oh, why so? Because our our nuclear detection network has become so pervasive and robust. And our intelligence capabilities have, have improved with respect to that mission so substantially that I think we pretty much shut down any illicit trading in nuclear materials. And I don't really see, so there is a chance that that North Korea could sell nuclear capabilities to other countries. We are concerned that Pakistan, Pakistan could sell nuclear weapons capabilities to Saudi Arabia. If Iran goes nuclear, Saudi Arabia has said it will go nuclear. That There won't be any question. If Iran acquires nuclear weapons, Saudi Arabia will acquire nuclear weapons. And then and the best route for the Saudi acquisition of nuclear weapons is to buy them from Pakistan. We suspect that the Saudi that Saudi Arabia provided substantial resources to Pakistan's nuclear weapons program. And we think that may have been an investment in a future insurance policy of, of transferring nuclear weapons. So we'll see. Right. Well, this has been wonderful to get your experience and expertise and, and discuss these issues. I think it would be uh, great if we could have you back again for, for a more extended discussion on these. As a final question, uh, we'd like to ask if you have any advice for students or young professionals that are interested in the field of nuclear nonproliferation specifically, but uh, national security generally, what advice would you give those individuals? Yeah, there's three things I would 
I would give uh, advice related to. The first one is the importance of networking. Um, developing a network in school is one of the most important things uh, students can do to, to invest in their future. In my own case, virtually almost every job I got throughout my career was through the mechanism of a, a, a friend from or a classmate from grad school. So that grad school network was really important. But the undergraduate network has also been really important too. So invest in that network. Don't lose contact with, with your, your friends and classmates. Nurture that. The other one is the importance of internships. Internships are a ex, uh, really valuable route into uh, the national security community. And finally, for many positions and many careers in the national security community, uh, a master's degree is really important. So the third thing I would encourage students to do is consider graduate educational opportunities after, after school. Perry, that's great advice, and, and this has been a great discussion. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today, and, and I agree with Jonathan. We're going to have to have you back to discuss those questions that you uh, left for us regarding China and, and some of our um, other challenges that we have in the nuclear area. Thanks so much for coming on today. You're welcome. Very happy to be here. This has been another episode of In the Interest of National Security. Our guest has been Dr. Carrie Karchner. The views expressed on this show are those of the hosts or our guest, and not necessarily Utah Valley University or the Center for National Security Studies. Today's episode was produced by Ian McDonald, Malik Rowe, Kayla Lay, and Henry Waltheus, with audio production by Thomas Rowe. The music was created and performed by Parker Rudd. Follow us on Instagram at iins.podcast to receive news and updates regarding future content. And please join us by subscribing at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you join us next time on In the Interests of National Security.